Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we're very fortunate to have Bill D'Alessandro from Element Brands join us on the podcast. Element Brands is a company you may have read about in Start Charlotte, or possibly you saw their recent expansion covered in the Charlotte Business Journal, but you still know relatively little about it, I would guess. We're going to change that today with the podcast with Bill, and you're going to be glad that we did. Um, I'm excited. We did this recording back in early December, and I've wanted to release it ever since then. Uh, Great podcast with Bill. Really had never met Bill before. Uh, Super good guy. Great company. They're going to do big things for a long time here in Charlotte. Um, And you've got to know more about them. So Bill's going to talk about that today. Um, I wanted to go into all kinds of different impacts or different things that we discussed. And Bill does such a great job on the podcast that I'm just going to tell you, stay tuned and sit in your seat. We covered just about right at an hour. Um, So it's going to be a really good show as we cover kind of where he got started from, where he is today, and then ultimately where they're going to end up being 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So really, really good podcast. Um, Please share this with your friends and family because they need to know what Bill and his team are building too. Um, So uh, sit back and enjoy Before we get into the interview, I I did just want to dive in, as I've started to do here a little bit over the last couple podcasts, um, and just talk about a few things that are going on in the community. I actually just stepped away from the the Seed the South event that's happening today, Wednesday, January 9th. Um, As some of you may know, I had my own startup from 2012 to 2015. I thought I had a great idea. I thought I could execute it to become a really, really good startup. Um, it turns out my idea wasn't great. My execution wasn't either. Um, even though I appeared in some popular publications like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and things like that, down the street today at Seed the South, there are some super fantastic founders. They've got great ideas, and they're executing a really good game plan around how to grow and scale their business. It doesn't mean they're all going to make it. Um, they're not going to all experience tremendous growth. There's a long, hard road um, in a startup life cycle, but um, they deserve a conversation. They deserve your honest opinion. Um, so if you get a chance to sit down and talk with them, please do. There's some really cool startups in Charlotte that just deserve a little bit more attention from all of us out there. So I'll get off my soapbox. Uh, please check the show notes as well. There'll be a link in there. Start Charlotte's doing a um, some startup awards. Need your vote. Please go in and vote for the, the couple of different things they're going to give awards out to. Finsiders is doing the same thing, so look for that. Um, also, QC Fintech's class, their spring class, is going to be coming to town here in the next couple um, in the next month or two. Check their website, social media feeds to figure out when the new class is coming to town and and what you can do to support them. And then finally, be ready for my release two weeks from today with with Sam Smith. She's the founder of Vision. She's the brain behind Seed the South. Uh, We're actually recording that episode this Friday, so we'll get a chance to talk to her about her company, Vision, but also about Seed the South. Um, It's going to be a great way to follow up 
today's really cool podcast. So with all that being said, let's transition over to the podcast with Bill. Certainly hope you enjoy it. And thank you again for being a listener on the Charlotte Angel Connection. Well, Bill, welcome to the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So and, uh, we're uh, definitely excited to have you um, join us, uh, learn more about Element Brands, learn a little bit more about you, um, and kind of talk about what the future holds for both here in the city of Charlotte. So um, let's go ahead and dive right in. Um, I know about you. I've read about you a lot over the course of the last couple of years. I know what Element Brands is. But just if you can, take a few minutes to tell us or tell the audience what is Element Brands, right? What do you? What fantastic work do you do here? Yeah, so uh, and I'm glad you had me on because I I feel like I see people at the time all the time, you know, at a brewery or whatever, and they say, "What do you guys do? You know, are you an are you branding agency or, you know, are you a uh, do you own the brands?" And so what Element Brands does is we're a consumer products company that owns. Uh, hidden brands that are hidden gems with loyal following. So if you've started a company in your garage, you know, you've scaled it up, it's been five or ten years, you've got a loyal following, it's a great product, you know, you've maybe got a couple folks, but you don't really know how to take it to the next level. You've sort of hit a glass ceiling, so yep. to speak. Um, it's really hard because when you're a small company, you got to be good at so many things. you got to be good at shipping and fulfillment. you got to be good at sourcing and manufacturing. you got to be good at Facebook ads and Google ads and dealing with Amazon. you got to be good at keeping your financials and knowing how to read a balance sheet and doing inventory projections. There's just so much that goes into running a small business, an e-commerce business, and an inventory-based business that we find that a lot of these entrepreneurs are good at a lot of things, but they're just struggling to keep all the balls in the air, so to speak. Um, and so it kind of prevents them from ever kind of crossing a certain threshold. So what we do is we look for brands like that, that are these great hidden gems, and we buy the brand, we acquire the brand from the founder, uh, and we help to scale it to the next level. Um, so we own now 10 different brands uh, in the what we call household goods and personal care, and now we have pet as well, yeah. uh, which we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we kind of what we look for is brands that, as I mentioned, have a loyal following, that have repeat purchase, that you use every day. So think about anything that you would use in your laundry room or your bathroom. Um, we love these products because we can build a relationship with the customer. Um, whereas, you know, if we're selling a bicycle, you might buy a bicycle once every 10 years. Yeah. But you're buying laundry detergent every few months, so we can develop an ongoing relationship with, with the customer. And that's also good from a business perspective because it allows us to spend more upfront on advertising to teach you about a product. So then when we do bring you on as a customer, we know that you're going to come back over a lifetime value. Um, so it allows us to really ramp up that upfront spend. So those are the types of products we look for, something that's branded, something that's repeat purchase and consumable. Um, we specifically exclude a few things, so we don't do any food uh, or, or drink or beverage. And the reason we don't do that is expiration dates for one, uh, and also general incompatibility with e-commerce. It's heavy, you know, it's hard to ship, the price points are generally lower. So we don't do food, uh, we don't do fashion, because you have to do so many sizes and colors. Okay. Uh, and we don't do consumer technology. Gotcha. Makes sense. So, um, so I'm familiar with Warren Buffett. He buys businesses, um, and then he keeps those founders in place. Um, do y'all keep those founders in place as well to run that, or is it kind of a purchase and they kind of fade off into the distance as the business continues to, to scale on from there? Yeah. So much like Warren Buffett, we look to buy brands and hold them forever. Yeah. So our business model is to buy a brand and fully integrate it into our platform and build Elements Brands into the Procter & Gamble of 2050. We want to have a portfolio of brands that we can own for the long term, take a long term view, 
uh, and allow them to throw off cash over the long term. Um, oftentimes, though, the reason uh, the, dif the difference between us and Warren Buffett is the businesses that Buffett is buying often have you know a stable, extensive management structure in place. The businesses that we're buying often the founder is selling because they want to move on to something else. Uh, so in our case, we're typically buying the business and allowing the founder to move on. Um, so typically when we buy a brand, the founder moves on to something different and we often do retain the team that the founder has built, but typically the founder goes away. And honestly, we find that that is typically good for everybody because, you know, a lot of times we buy a brand, we'll change the logo or we'll tweak the packaging or we'll change the website. And, you know, it's a lot, you know, when seeing us do those changes to your baby, yeah. I think can be tough for a lot of entrepreneurs. Exactly. Uh, so it's good, you know, they're, they're looking to sell because they're looking to move on and we give them that opportunity. So you just made, you just recently made an acquisition, right? You just bought a company down in Texas. Um, talk a little bit about that. And is that kind of your, um, and talk about that acquisition. Is that kind of your standard acquisition as you go through it? Um, yeah, so we just bought a company called The Natural Dog Company. It's naturaldogcompany.com if people would like to look it up. Um, they are based in Marble Falls, Texas, which is right outside of Austin. Okay. Um, so we have seven new coworkers down there, which we're really excited about. Um, the woman who founded it has moved on. Um, I believe she's going to be starting a nonprofit. Um, so we have inherited seven excellent folks down in Texas. Um, and the Natural Dog Company... Uh, manufactures uh, skin and coat bombs for dogs. So if you've seen, you know, like French bulldogs or you know all the dogs with the folds on the faces, mm -hmm. uh, often they get skinfold dermatitis or they get really crusty noses, um, or sometimes dogs' paws get really irritated. So the National Dog Company makes a line of products that help dogs heal from those conditions, uh, and we're also really excited. So just just with that very narrow set of products, uh, it is our second largest brand. Um, the pet, the companion pet industry is a huge one. Yeah. Uh, we're very excited about it. And the thing that blew me away is there are more companion pets in America than children under 18. So the pet market is larger than the kid market, which is insane. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're really excited to be in the companion pet space. And we have for 2019 a whole set of new products planned out, um, which, you know, we'll announce on our website. But, you know, sneak peek, things like supplements, treats food. I mean, there's all sorts of things that people need for their dogs and they're looking for these high quality natural products. Uh, and the natural dog company is a great platform for us to introduce those. Yeah, and that makes sense. Um, you're not in Texas. Um, let me rephrase that six months ago, you weren't in Texas. Correct. How did you find that company in Texas? Right? Yeah. So we have, uh, and, and this is core to our business models. We need to be good at finding these brands yeah. that are for sale. Um, so we actually, the way this one came to us is we have all of our employees obviously understand our business model. So we have an internal board where people can say, hey, I bought this product. It's really great. I love it. It seems to be from a small company. Well, let's reach out to them and see if they'd be interested in selling. And that's actually how we found the Natural Dog Company. One of our employees had purchased the product and raised it and put it on our uh, to investigate board. And the tagline was, marketing can dream, you know, <laughs> hoping that, you know, one day we could have a pet brand. Uh, and we have a full-time corporate development guy, uh, so he reached out. We started a conversation with them, and we were serendipitously, uh, the founder was feeling a little bit in over her head. She was ready to start thinking about selling, so we were able to get in sort of before she ran a broad auction process um, and negotiate a deal where she didn't have to take it to market, and we could get it done. Oh, that's awesome. 
Um, how long did that process take for y'all from start to finish? So this one was a little atypical um, because as I said, she was starting to think about selling. So uh, this process from kind of nice to meet you, are you interested in selling, to closing the deal was about seven months, mm -hmm. uh, which is atypically long for us. Okay. Um, typically, if a business is already for sale, um, from we typically close in 60 to 90 days from nice to meet you to here's your check, okay. which is quite fast for the industry, uh, which is something we really pride ourselves on. Um, we pride ourselves on being a professional acquirer. So if you come to us and say, you know, I'm looking to sell my business, you know, we're not going to say, all right, we've got to put you under exclusivity for six months. We've got to audit all your financials. You know, I don't understand this e-commerce thing. Let me get comfortable with it. You know, oh, now I need a second mortgage on my house to buy your business. And, you know, halfway through the diligence process, I'm going to renegotiate you down on price just because I'm a jerk. You know, we don't pull those tricks. So one of the things that we try to make very clear to our entrepreneurs is that we're professional acquirers. Uh, when you, if you say you're for sale, you accept our offer. We're, we have the money in place. We're going to close in 60 to 90 days every time. We're not going to retrade on price. And I'm very proud of the fact that we have always closed on our LOI terms 100% of the time. Um, so that when we make a promise to an entrepreneur, we keep it. Yeah. Is it possible, I mean, Charlotte's a big, big town, right? Mm -hmm. um, hesitate to call it a city because um, it still seems like a small town in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Is it possible to acquire companies that were started here in Charlotte? I would love to. Yeah. Um, I have not, I know plenty of smaller companies yeah. um, and I've spoken with a lot of founders. And if you are a physical products founder, a CPG founder listening to this, please reach out to us. And even if you're not ready to sell, I would just love to have a beer with you um, and talk shop. Um, and so I do have friends in Charlotte doing that type of stuff. Um, we haven't found one that's a fit that's homegrown, yeah. but I would love it if yeah. we could. Um, where, where is Element Brands in five years, 10 years down the road? I mean, you said earlier 2050 Procter & Gamble of, of 2050, right? Mm -hmm. So you kind of get the vision, but where are you five, 10, 20 years down the road from now? Yeah, so my hope is that in you know a decade, Elements Brands is seen as sort of the home for consumer products brands. That if you have started a company and you're looking for a good long-term home, that you think of Elements Brands first. Um, and in order to do that, we need to build Elements Brands up into a place that can receive all of these brands. So our big, hairy, audacious goal for 2025 is to be at a place where we can do 12 acquisitions a year, one every month. Wow. So that's the infrastructure that we're marching towards. And in order to do that, we've got to have a great marketing team that can suck all of these down. We've got to have great logistics and warehousing, which we're moving into new headquarters, which I know we'll talk about in a little yeah. bit, um, which is you know 51,000 square feet. So we can handle huge amounts of volume. Where are you today, square footage-wise? Uh, we're about 8,000 square feet okay. right here, and we have 15-foot ceilings, yeah. and the new building is 51,000 square feet with 30-foot ceilings. So you got a little room to grow. Yeah, so it's more, it's from a, if you include the ceiling height, it's more than 20 times bigger. Wow. Uh, so. Which is really cool. Um, so just to continue to grow, I mean, an acquisition every month by 2025 means that you're starting to move at a pretty rapid pace. Yeah. So we're trying to basically turn up the volume on what we've built. Uh, we've spent, you know, since I came back to Charlotte in 2015, uh, with one employee, um, we're now up to counting our folks in Texas, 33 employees. Um, so we've kind of built the infrastructure and we're managing 10 brands and we're succeeding at that. And we've kind of mapped out how our org chart needs to look and where we're going to need to be hiring. So our goal now is to scale the human capital that we have and make sure that our current portfolio is cash flowing such that we have free cash to go buy more brands and kind of run that flywheel. 
So um, a bunch of different questions off for the last couple of minutes, but let's kind of stay home on employees for a little bit. You've won uh, best places to work in Charlotte, or not won, but been right up there at the top for the last couple of years. Uh, how do you do it, right? How does Element Brands uh, uh, rank there at the top, and what does it mean for the company today? Well, so it means a lot to me personally, yeah. uh, because when I started Elements Brands, uh, I my past is in investment banking. Yeah. And I ran out of college, I did investment banking for two years, and it was incredibly valuable, but it was like boot camp. Yeah. Um, you know, I worked my butt off, I worked 80 plus hours a week, and the culture was not always what you might hope it would be. Um, but that's the nature of, of the beast there. So when I started Elements Brands, what I really want to do is establish a company that was high performance, but also was a place that people wanted to come to work. And not just our own employees, but also people outside the company that when we post jobs, they want to come work here. Yeah. Um, so one of, one of our core tenants is that I believe that we employ adults and adults don't need to be micromanaged. Um, so we have, you know, if you have a, the cable guy come in, you know, you don't need to let me know. Just be at home, get your stuff done. You know, we support people uh, working from home occasionally. You know, we're all digital, so that's very easy. Um, so we have a results-based culture. So my view has always been the way I'm going to know you're not doing your job is because your results are slipping, not because I don't see you at your desk. Yeah. Um, and I want to build this into a place where people are excited to come to work. They don't have the Sunday scaries, want, you know, nervous to come in on Monday morning. Uh, and I think we've done a good job of that. Um, we have... Uh, we've not ha ever had anyone leave Elements Brands voluntarily. Okay. Um, which I take a lot of pride in. Oh yeah, no, that's um, fantastic. I never have had anyone quit in you know, seven years of running this business. Do you, so I didn't see a nap room when I walked in here. Is there a nap room in the new building? <laughs> there is not. So this is something I think people often get wrong about yeah. company culture. People think that culture is ping pong tables, yeah. so to speak, right? Um, but ping pong tables are the result of good culture. You know, you can't just put ping pong tables in a bad culture. No one will want to play ping pong with each other. Um, so it's good culture is much more about giving people meaningful work, letting them see progress towards it, letting them have ownership over hard problems, um, and succeeding at solving those hard problems. Uh, so that's the type of culture that we try to build. And then also you can't tol tolerate jerks at all. So if you're nice to each other and you have meaningful work that you're succeeding at, those are the building blocks of a culture. And then if you bring in a ping pong table, people want to play ping pong yeah. with each other. So um, we have the, the new building does have some cool stuff. We're going to put in a slide. Okay. Uh, we have a mezzanine. We'll have a cool slide. We'll have a whole break area that's kind of uh, styled like an outdoor back patio. Um, it's going to be fun. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we didn't have all those things when it was just us in this dinky little warehouse in South End. Uh, and we still had a good culture. So, it, But you got to work at it. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, so keeping a good culture as you grow... Um, a, are there, are there positions that you think you'll be looking for next year that people on the podcast can kind of check your page for periodically? You've kind of got a org chart built. What's on the horizon from a, a growth perspective? Yeah. So the big thing that we're looking for right now is we just posted for a director of sales. Um, so we're looking for, you know, and we do a lot of our business online. Uh, but we also do about 10% of our business through retail. And we have a specific focus on mom and pop retail. And typically going to market through retail has been, it's been sexy to go to the big chains, the Harris Teeters, the Bed Bath Beyonds, et cetera. And we do do business with those folks. Um, but we believe that as the world moves more online, that the small independent retailers are the future of retail. 
And in order to serve them, we need to find a way to serve them at scale. Yeah. And we've been doing that by building some custom technology to reach out to these people, help them manage their inventory, help them to reorder. Uh, so we're building an engine to do uh, mom and pop retail at scale. Uh, I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of individual doors enabled by technology. Um, and what we're looking for is a director of sales to head up building that organization, to head up, you know, having 10 reps underneath them. We have two currently, but I'd like a director of sales to build out you know, the unit economics of an individual salesperson. You know, how much do they make? What's their commission? How many doors can they open every day? You know, how much are those doors worth? You know, what do those doors carry? And once we can make that work, then we can scale out that team, 10, 20, 30, you know, people bringing on new wholesale doors. Yeah. Um, so if anybody is listening and thinks they might be a great fit for that or knows a dynamic director of sales, uh, particularly with experience in pet or consumer products at all, please have them reach out. That job, director of sales, is posted on Charlotte Agenda and on our website at elementsbrands.com. Okay. Um, how do you keep culture? Um, I mean, it has to be a concern of yours, right? I mean, you've got some fantastic people out there, um, but you're uh, going uh, to a 51,000 square foot building, um, you're 20x in your size. Um, you've got a big, hairy, audacious goal for 2025. Do you worry about culture breaking down a little bit as the company grows? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm always watching our culture to make sure that it doesn't break down. Yeah. Um, like I'll give you an example, our new building, as you mentioned, it's very large. Yeah. Um, and we could have, there's 12,000 square feet of office space, and we currently have about 3,000 square feet of office space here. So if we had just moved into all that, and it's on two floors, we would have spread our team out very dramatically, and it would have been hard to maintain this kind of tight-knit, everybody's lunch together type of culture. So what we did is we uh, divided up the building, and we leased out the top floor to 2U Laundry, actually. Yeah. Uh, and then the bottom floor, we're going to all stay tight in the bottom floor. Uh, another thing we've done very intentionally in the new space is we picked a building where it has warehouse and office together. You know, it would have been very easy to take the warehouse out to 45 where land is cheap and it's easy to ship stuff and keep the office here in South End. Yeah. But as soon as we do that, now I become a suit every time I go to the warehouse, right? Oh, corporate is here. Yeah. Uh, and I never wanted that to happen to our culture. So we took a lot longer to find this building that has warehouse and office co-located. And we put the break room for the office folks in the warehouse. Uh, so it makes everybody commingle, and we all feel like we're part of one team, which has been, I think, really critical to being able to do this e-commerce thing, which is very logistics-heavy, and everybody's got to work together. Yeah, you're a sharp guy. Um, there's no question about that. Um, one of the um, one of the things you can tell that buys the people that you've surrounded yourself with. Um, the advisors listed on your website, how much do you lean into those and how did you kind of grab, I mean, that's a high profile set of folks, right? So um, how much do you lean on them on kind of business decisions as you go through the course of a quarter or a year? Yeah, a lot. So our advisors are listed on our website and they're all investors in the company. Uh, as well, um, which we can talk about, yeah, you know, later if you'd like. Um, but Don't jump we too have... far ahead of me there, Bill. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so our advisors, uh, our group of advisors, we have five guys, uh, all investors in the company, and they we have board meetings once a quarter, mm -hmm. uh, and they all come and we sit around this table that you and I are sitting at right now for three hours, and it's the most valuable twelve hours in aggregate of my year. Um, so those guys are great. You know, I can pick up the phone and call any one of them, uh, and I was really deliberate. And assembling the group that we've got, I mean, we've got guys with experience in private equity, which is very relevant for us because we're doing acquisitions. So I've got guys with experience in retail. I've got guys with experience in consumer products, uh, finance, uh, 
uh, manufacturer's rep. I mean, all sorts of stuff that is very relevant to how we run our company. Um, and I've been very blessed with a group of guys that answers my phone call whenever yeah. I do call them. So it's been inval- invaluable to assemble that kind of group. So for entrepreneurs that are out there listening, um, how do you assemble that group, right? Because to your point, most um, most valuable 12 hours of the year mm-hmm. um, for somebody that's got a startup um, or for an investor that's looking at different startups, right? Um, how do you know the team around you that advisors is the right team to help you scale going forward? Uh, I mean, I think you know if you've got the right group because they answer the phone when you call yeah. and seem to enjoy it. Uh, as soon as you can tell that helping you is a chore for them, you probably don't have the right group. Um, and part of that can be about financial alignment. Also, you know, it's very tough to go to someone and just say, hey, will you be on my board of advisors for free? Yeah. Anybody that you would want on your board of advisors is busy. Yeah. Right? So I think what... What I approach it from is let me get a group of investors who are relevant, and then I'll get them as advisors for free, yeah. essentially, because they'll be financially aligned with our business. So that's when we were raising, I turned down money from folks who I didn't think would be good advisors. And I was fortunate enough that we had enough interest that I could pick and choose. Um, but I would think about for other entrepreneurs out there, figure out who is going to be an advisor and how do we financially incent them to come to the meeting four times a, a year and sit there and pay attention. And it's not necessarily for all these guys, you know, paying them. It's probably giving them a little bit of upside in the company, but also proving that when they talk, you listen. Yeah. Um, because if you're constantly giving advice that's not getting listened to, I think you probably stop giving that advice. Uh, most likely. Um, when did you raise money, Bill? So we raised in October 2016. Okay. So by that point in time, so Element Brands, you started in 2011? Yep. Um, so you'd been in business for a while before you decided to raise money. Mm-hmm. What was that decision like for you? Gosh knows, I'm going to go out and raise money now, right? Yeah. Um, tough decision or pretty easy by that point in time? Tough decision. I mean, because I, it was really a fork in the road moment. So I started the business in t- with I basically put my life savings on the line. Okay. You know, every amount of every penny I had ever saved, you know, I used to start Elements Brands uh, in the early days. And, you know, we kind of had gotten to this place in 2016 where I had sort of, I had I won the game insofar as the company was profitable mm-hmm. and we could do, you know, one acquisition every year or two and the business model kind of worked and it was a successful small business. And I kind of looked in the mirror and I said, like, I can be done, so to speak. You know, I can run this business forever. Yeah. Um, it, at sort of at this scale and it will grow kind of a healthy 10, 20% a year. We'll do occasionally more acquisitions. Um, or I can go for it. You know, and in order to go for it, that meant I needed to do more acquisitions faster and I needed to build the team ahead of doing those acquisitions which meant, you know, before, build a team before I had the cash flow to pay for that team. Yeah. Um, so I basically said, I can cruise uh, or I can go for it. And a friend of mine once told me that you can only coast downhill, uh, which kind of resonated with me. And so I said, I could coast for the rest of my life, but downhill, but I feel like I would have wasted what I have as a real opportunity here to invent a new business model uh, and to prove that, you know, the consumer products world is changing and it's moving from this world of larger brands uh, delivered through large retail chains to a world of smaller brands delivered direct consumer online. And that shift requires a di- 
allows and enables a different type of consumer products company. And Elements Brands can be that different type of consumer products company. And if I don't go for it, I'll always regret it. Yeah. Um, and that was why I ultimately made the decision to go out and raise money and to redouble down, so to speak, and to move the goalposts to let's be the Procter & Gamble of 2050 instead of let's be a successful small business. Yeah. Um, so that money was used to start to build the team and the infrastructure to start to make acquisitions. Um, before that, when you were making acquisitions, were you cash flowing those acquisitions as you went through? Yeah, and we used some bank debt also. Yep. So basically, before we would have to cash flow, you know, throughout the year and sock the money away, yep. right? A bit like saving up for a down payment on a house. Yep. And then we would also kind of have to wait until we found a business that we liked. Then we have to go to the bank and beg for the other eighty percent, right? And that's how we do the acquisition. Then we have to save up for another down payment. Um, and meanwhile, we'd have to spend on hiring more people so the savings rate was slower or faster depending on who we needed. So it just took longer. Yeah. Um, and we were actually very fortunate. Um, we worked with BB&T on a couple SBA loans uh, in the early days. Uh, and that allowed me to do a first few acquisitions without needing to raise outside equity capital, which was a lot cheaper and allowed me to retain a lot more of the company. Um, so we did, we did it that way in the early days. And I basically got to the point where I knew what that velocity was. And I said, if I want to go faster, I need to be able to immediately have my 20% down payment uh, for a few. And then also, if I'm going to go that fast, i got to start hiring now because hiring takes a while. Yeah. So I, I would have the infrastructure and I could feel confident executing deals as they came. Was that kind of the raise? Was that kind of like a friends and family seed-ish type raise? Um, friends and family used loosely, right? Or was it more, did you bring in institutional money in in that first round? So I designed our raise very intentionally. So we raised... I bet, uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised. We raised a little over three million bucks, okay. um, which is you know definitely above kind of friends and family. It is above friends and level. family. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want to bring in institutional capital either because you know when you raise rocket fuel venture capital, sometimes they can insist that they do th do things you do unnatural things, so to speak, to accelerate the company sometimes artificially. Um, and then they also got to get liquid. Yeah, they want their five to seven years' money, right? Right. So I didn't want to kind of start that clock, and I wanted to build a different type of business. So I said, I want to go out and find individuals who can have a longer-term time horizon, and we can raise, you know, quote-unquote angel capital, but large-scale angel capital. So I didn't have an institution in the room. We just had a couple, couple folks in the room, so yeah. to speak. Um, so that's what I went out looking for, and that's what I was very fortunate to find. Um, so we raised from five guys, um, and as I said, all with specific expertises. Um, you know, some guys with family offices, guys who have been successful in their business careers. Um, so it looks like an angel round, but it was, it was a little bit more professional than an angel round. There's only, there's not, I don't have 30 people on the cap table. Yeah. Right, so I don't have to herd cats in that way either. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, in order to do an acquisition a month in 2025, will you have to go out to the institutional world and raise money, or do you think you can cash flow it and use other means to get there? So the goal is to cash flow. Yeah. Um, and we're at a point now, you know, financially, where between cash flow and debt should be at a point where we don't need additional equity capital, so, if I play my cards yeah, right. That's a good, <laughs> good place to be. Yeah. Um, you've grown up in a... Um, 
in a um, in two worlds. One is a world from 2010 to 2018 where we haven't had a recession, um, and another one is a world where Amazon has seemed to shut down um, as many stores as Walmart did back in the 80s and 90s. Right? Um, a it seems like every public CEO in the world is scared of Amazon. Are you scared of Amazon? Uh, it's the dance with the devil, right? Yeah. Like, yes, I'm scared of Amazon, but also you can't fight gravity. Yeah. Um, so on one hand, we come to work every day and try to outgrow Jeff Bezos, which yeah. is tough. But on the other hand, we do 40 plus percent of our revenue with Amazon. I mean, yeah. they're a great partner to us. So what we've done is said where everybody else is trying to fight Amazon. We said, I'm not going to take focus away from our own dot-com properties and our own direct consumer relationships, but we're also going to lean into this Amazon thing. So we actually went out and hired an ex-Amazonian. Um, and have built a team in-house that specializes in Amazon. Okay. Um, so we we run them as parallel paths. We run our dot-com direct consumer and our Amazon as synergistic parallel paths. And if you advertise with us, if we advertise to you and you go to our website and then you ultimately buy it on Amazon, I'm still okay with that because we got the sale. Um, and that's the power of being the brand instead of the retailer because even if you bought it on Amazon, you Amazon got it from us. Right, so we still got the sale. Versus if you are, you know, a retailer and someone comes in your store and you know showrooms you and then buys on Amazon, you've lost the sale. Yeah. Uh, but when you control the brand and as long as you keep your channel clean, you know, the, wherever the customer gets it, they're still getting it from you. Fair enough. Um, so do you worry about the next recession? Then I mean, we're you know everybody's you know uh, it seems like every time you turn on the news, you open up a newspaper, somebody's predicting. Um, or, or some economist is predicting a recession. Um, just so you know, the, it looks like the predictions are 2020 from The Economist, and economists are never right, so you know it won't be 2020. Yep. <laughs> It'll be 19 or 21. But does that keep you up at night? Uh, I mean, you know, every business worries about the macroeconomic client, yeah. uh, climate, but um, our business is, what we try to do is create a direct pipeline to the consumer so that, you know, we're not dependent. It used to be that if you were dependent on Walmart, and Walmart is shrinking or they're kicking people off the shelves, you know, they could cut you off yeah. from your customer right away. But because we go direct, you know, we can still reach those people. Um, and because we go direct, we're not giving up all that margin to Walmart. So if we have to come down in price, you know, we can follow a, tr a macro trend down in price if we have to. Uh, we've also very intentionally invested in some areas that are countercyclical, and PET is one of those. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that everybody sees in every recession is the birth rate goes down, Yeah, typically. Um, and we also know that there's sort of this macro trend where people are replacing kids with pets at scale, right? People are waiting longer to have children um, and they get pets instead and yeah. first. Um, so the pet industry has been counter-cyclical and we have a theory that will be even more extremely counter-cyclical in the next recession. Um, so we feel very comfortable in that space. Um, and a lot of the stuff we sell is kind of household staples, you know, stuff that your laundry detergent, you know, face cream, things that you're using all the time. And this also is why we are interested in, you know, babies. So we've got some baby stuff as well, because people, even if they're not spending money on their pets in a recession, they're spending it on their kids because the, there's all kinds of data that shows the last thing people cut is their kids and their pets, you know, yeah. they'll cut themselves first. But, uh, so we've positioned ourselves and we can lean into those places, you know, if the economy flips over on us, you know, and when things are well, we lean into our more luxury products. Uh, so it's about building, you know, if we've got a hundred brands, it's about building a diversified portfolio such that we lean in different places depending on how the economy is. Yeah. 
Um, so Jeff Bezos doesn't keep Bill up at night, and Recession doesn't keep Bill up at night. What keeps you up at night? Uh, what keeps me up at night, honestly, is building our team. Um, because as we as we grow and try to fulfill the ambition that we have for Elements Brands, the thing that it requires is awesome people. Uh, and finding enough of those awesome people, really good at vetting them so we sure, we're sure that they are awesome on the way in the door, keeping them happy, make sure they stay, because turnover is really expensive and slows us down. Uh, so that is, I think, the hardest thing in business, you know, as you start to scale, is keeping your culture good, making sure you don't compromise on hiring, making sure no one on your team compromises on hiring, because it used to be that I could interview everybody that worked here, right? But now we're north of 30 employees, Sometimes people start here and I hadn't met them. So pushing down that high bar for hiring in the organization is real important. And I think we've done a good job with that. Um, so, I mean, yeah, and I mean, obviously I do worry about the macro stuff a yeah. little bit, but you know, I think our biggest challenge is finding the right people, bringing them on board, putting them in the right places, and then getting out of their way. Do you eventually have to become a kind of a tech company or you do? Very much, yeah. Um, when's that transition on the horizon? So that is actually one of our huge investment areas for 2019, because um, when you think about it, we've got 10 brands now, yeah, and we don't really hang them out there in public as Elements brands. Brands, you know, in the same, you'll see Procter and Gamble, you know, on a Tide bottle, but we don't really do that for our brands. So we'll, our, the next step for us is to cross pollinate the brands. One of the really interesting things we started to see in 2018 is as we dug through all of our data. We started to see carts on Amazon that had products from more than one of our brands completely accidentally. Okay. So as we get bigger, right, and we, our kind of our coverage of the consumer products map increases, we're going to have multiple touch points with the same consumer. And to build an analytics engine and a customer data platform to suck all that data in and know, you know, hey, you just bought a baby product. Right in three years, I can sell you, you know, a, a product for four-year-olds, yeah. and in three more years for seven-year-olds, etc. Um, or you bought a, a pet product over here, I can sell you one of our different pet brands. And to start to build a customer profile of just who exactly you are and what you're buying and what else you might want to buy, that data is phenomenally valuable. Because then, once we have that built up, when we buy a new brand, we can immediately plug the new brand into this huge data warehouse of you know millions of orders over the past 10 years yeah right of all these different brands and we can enrich that data with you know data from the credit bureaus like how much money do you make where do you live how many kids do you have you know what are your interests are you planning a vacation all that stuff and when we can build that type of knowledge about a customer then we can sell them all kinds of consumer products yeah. stuff that they want probably and that makes us while we're a consumer products company First, we very much have to be a tech company, just like, in my view, all successful companies of, of the next several decades. Does it worry that does it worry you at all that you have to be a tech company um, in a in a town? And gosh knows we're trying to become a tech town, right? But um, we're still kind of a banking town, and, and tech's making inroads. Um, does it worry you that you have to be a tech company in a town that's not quite yet a tech town, um, or do you think there's enough talent here and Good companies like um, you know, y'all and others will attract talent over time that you're not concerned about it. Well, I think Charlotte is kind of right on a precipice. Yeah. I mean, it is definitely true that looking in the rearview mirror, Charlotte has been a banking town. Yeah, for sure. Um, but there have been a lot of businesses 
build here that are more tech-enabled than you might think. You know, Red Ventures comes to mind, Average Exchange, Passport. You know, there's a bunch of these businesses, Map Anything. Like, these are tech businesses. Yeah. Uh, and these businesses are reaching scale and maturity where they're, you know, maybe they get some liquidity or maybe just people want to change careers. You know, they're spinning off all kinds of tech talent. And there's tons of companies I haven't mentioned even. I think I just saw that Charlotte has, uh, they got named, like, on top 10, I think, of most new tech workers or something. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I feel it tar- starting to turn over like right now. Yeah. So I think it's a very good time to be on the forefront of becoming a tech company in Charlotte because people don't want to go work for the banks. You know, they're looking to work for a company that's not a startup. They don't want to take that kind of career risk. They're looking for a company that feels cool and fun and fast moving and is not a bank, but where they can still bring their tech skills to bear. And I, my hope is that Elements Brands can be that home for those people. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so let's change track a little bit and talk a little bit about Bill. Um, so you went to Wake Forest, you studied entrepreneurship and computer science. Yep. Um, you graduated, you did some different things. Did I read right that you're a big Tim Ferriss fan? I am, yeah. Um, so then I have to know, um, did you learn more from Tim Ferriss or did you learn more from the entrepreneurial program at Wake Forest? Uh, so it was both. So the Wake Forest entrepreneurship program actually was great for me. Um, some, uh, I think there's largely varying quality in the entrepreneurship programs in, in college across the country. Wake's was great. I had an excellent experience. Um, and I paired it. So I actually, I majored in finance and computer science and then minored in entrepreneurship. Okay. So I got that kind of business grounding, you know, how does business work, the language of business. I got that in the language of small business from the entrepreneurship program at Wake, which was great. Um, the thing that the four-hour work week, Tim Ferriss, that that book taught me was it made it real and it made it achievable and possible. And I went, damn, like I thought entrepreneurship and startups were about starting a company like Facebook and aggregating millions of eyeballs and selling them ads. And I thought that's what startups were. Yeah. But the four-hour work week reading that book, I said, wait a minute, I can make a widget and sell it to people and sell it to them for more money than it cost me to make it and make a profit every time I sell a thing. And that sounds insanely basic, right? Yeah. But that blew my mind at the time. I thought, oh my God, like that, it's so much easier than I thought it was. Yeah. Uh, and that was the core insight to me for the four hour work week was, oh my God, I can do this. So coming out of Wake Forest, did you know you were gonna start business? Did you know you were gonna be an entrepreneur? Uh, I did, I always, I mean, I, I had my own business in high school. Um, fixing people's computers. Uh, I, had, I started a business in college, uh, which we sold when I graduated small business. Yeah. Um, so I always sort of had the bug, so to speak. So why Edgeview? Why go subject yourself to 80-hour work weeks at Edgeview if you're going to start a business in the future? You know, I could weave some sort of post hoc, like very intentional yeah. story that made it sound like it was super planned. Uh, but honestly, what it came down to was all the smart kids at Wake Forest were doing investment banking jobs and it was 2008 before the bottom had fallen out or 2007 Uh, and it seemed like the right thing to do and I you know the business we started in college we had just kind of exited that I didn't have a good idea and my dad one thing my dad always taught me was if you got to make a choice make a choice that doesn't close doors yeah um, and so I said, I'll go into investment banking. Like this cannot be a mistake. You yeah. know, I'll go do this for two years. I'll get my butt kicked. I'll learn a lot, uh, and then I'll come up for air. And that's kind of why I did it. So when did you read Four Hour Work Week? Uh, during investment banking. Did you? Yeah. Um, and you flew out to Colorado and uh, kind of tell the beginning days of um, you Colorado 
Element Brands getting kicked off? Yeah, so it actually started while I was in banking. I read the 4-Hour Workweek, and I read it at a time when we were selling a business, and I won't say who it was, but we were selling a business for this guy, uh, and they made soap, and then they also made like pita chips. They made a mishmash of consumer products. Uh, they had five or six employees, and they had $5 million of EBITDA, and they contract manufactured everything, and the guy had not gone to college. And we sold his business for $50 million. Um, and you know, the folks at Edgeview took home a couple percentage points of that, yeah. and this guy took home the rest. Uh, and he was, I'm not trying to belittle what he did, he was a very smart guy, but I went, oh my God, like, if this guy can do it, I can definitely do this. Um, it may, again, it made it tangible for me. Um, and so reading the book and having that experience selling this guy's business, and he did phenomenally well on it, uh, and it was a good business. It, it, made, it made it so real to me. Um, so then I moved out to Colorado, and I was working uh, for a technology company out there, a data center company called Hosting.com. Um, and this was kind of as the cloud was just getting started, and this yeah. was before everybody did everything on AWS. Uh, so they had data centers, and we had six data centers across the country. So what I did for them was do acquisitions. So I went out, we bought a data center company in Texas, um, and you know, then I integrated that. You know, they have a certain product offering, we have a certain product offering, how do you harmonize that? Uh, so I did that for three years, and it was an incredible experience. But I went from investment banking, which was 80 hours a week, to working in a, quote, real business, where if I put in 40 hours a week, it blew people's minds. Uh, and I would kind of come home at 6 o'clock, and I'm like, well, I still got five hours of productivity left. What should I do? And that was when I started Elements Brands, um, kind of in the four-hour workweek template. So what was the first company? Uh, the first product was KP Elements, which we still own today. Yeah. Um, and that the company was originally called KP Elements, uh, and th thus, ultimately, Elements Brands. Yeah. Um, and I was running out of my apartment in Denver, Colorado, uh, and I still remember in those early days, I had hooked it up that when I got a sale, it would play a cash register sound on my phone. And at this point, I got two sales a day, right? Yeah. It was very early, but I remember I was driving back from work, my job at hosting.com. I was sitting at a stoplight when I got my first sale, and I remember hearing a cash register sound and just being like elated in the car, you know, just like hooting and hollering. Uh, it just sticks out in my mind. And it was, you know, I had cream in my bedroom, so to speak. And I would go to the post office on the way to work every day. Uh, and then ultimately I outsourced that to a fulfillment company. Um, and then I was using some agencies to do the advertising. You know, we kind of got to the point where you know, I was making like 50 grand a year from that. And that's when I quit my job. Okay. You know, I kind of wanted to get to the point. You know, I was doing it. I would come home at 6. I'd work out. Starting at 7, I'd work from 7 till midnight on KP Elements and then I go back to work the next day. And I think this sort of, I, I'm, I digress here, but people always ask the question, like, should I follow my passion? Like, should I quit my job? Like, how do I balance these two things? And I'm a huge proponent of having a second job, which is your startup, because then your primary job bankrolls your startup. It pays your salary and you can't slack off. I want to make it really clear, like you shouldn't be slacking at work, yeah. but I don't think people understand that if you want to start a company, it takes work, which means you got to come home from your job, you got to eat dinner, and then you got to put another work day. Yep. But if you do that, it dramatically reduces your risk 
because you're still getting paid. And also it allows you to take every penny that of revenue that comes in from your startup and plow it back into growing your startup because you don't have to use that money to pay your rent. So I'm a huge proponent of just busting your butt in the early days and having two jobs, one of which is your startup, until you can replace your income. And that for me, I said, okay, I kind of drew that line in the sand. Like if I can make 50 grand, I knew I could make my rent, you know, I can I can do everything I want to do and it's not replacement income, but I can do that. Yeah. Um, so when I got there, that's when I quit. So was that your aha moment that this is going to work is when you hit 50,000 or was it before then? Or was it even after It then? was after. Yeah. I mean, because that wasn't a lot of money compared to the ambition that I had. Yeah. You know? Um, so that was enough for me to get comfortable that I could do it. Yeah. You know, that wasn't going to be destitute. Uh, a lot of the risk was off the table at that point. Um, but the time, I kind of realized it was going to work. Uh, after I did my first acquisition. Uh, we bought a brand called Nurture My Body in 2013. And I was able, that's when I plunked down my life savings and uh, borrowed money from the bank and borrowed some money from my dad. Uh, and we did it. Uh, and bought that business, that business grew, and that acquisition was successful. And it was at that point that I said, okay, now I have a template. You know, I could do this more times. Uh, and kind of from then on, it was about figuring out how to go faster, which sounds easy, but was actually very hard because a lot of scale is in a step function. You know, you hire a person, that's a chunk, chunk piece of salary, yep. right? But a lot of times you can't afford that person, but you also can't get big enough so that you can afford that person without that person. So, you know, there were years of kind of balancing that treadmill, so to speak. Um, and I, as I got faster, you know, the speed on the treadmill gradually went up and I started to go, okay, it's working. Okay, it's working. I think this is going to happen. Um, and the speed has just continued to increase from there. Um, stick on that and then let's um, flip gears for a second. Essentially, because you're moonlighting as an entrepreneur, yeah. you're kind of profitable from day one. Yeah. Um, so many companies these days, startups, aren't focused on being profitable. But it's a good thing to be profitable, isn't it, Bill? You're right. I mean, that, you're, you kind of lay it bare. You're right. That's embedded in the whole thing yeah. is, yes, I was profitable from day one. Um, and that's because my business was designed to be profitable. Yeah. And that's what that's the core insight from the 4-Hour Workweek, yeah. right? I didn't need to build this freemium-based product where it has a J-curve where you lose a bunch of money. And then finally, when you have scale, you can either charge for it or offer a premium thing or sell money to ad advertisers or, or whatever. Um, I was every one I sold, we made money on. Um, and you know, in the early days we broke even on, or we lost a little bit of money, but fundamentally there were unit economics there from the first get go. Uh, and I think a lot of people dive into a startup and they go, Oh, well, we'll just get big and then we'll figure out how to make money or we'll raise a bunch of money. Um, my model was never predicated on raising money ever. Um, cause I figured, I mean, yeah, I'll use some savings, yeah. but that'll just be to kind of get me off the ground, but we should be able to fund ourselves by the widgets that we sell. Yeah. And that still is the case. Um, fair enough. So, um, it's not easy, right? I mean, you mentioned earlier, you're, um, it's kind of step for a while as you go through that process. Um, what's that home bill like? Um, are you intense at home too, or you, can you wind down? Is it always, you got a wedding ring on, so you're married. Yep. Um, uh, is it always intense, Bill, or can you, can you wind down a little bit? Well, so, I mean, we haven't known each other for that long, but I'm interested that you peg me as intense, Bill, because yeah. that's not typically how I see myself, actually. Um, it's intense. I shouldn't, I don't know if intense is the right word. Um, do you have a very 
good sense of where you're going, right? Um, so call that intense, call it whatever you want to, but you know what's happening and you've thought through it. Um, so Yes, I'm always that way. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean, I always have a goal in mind and I'm working towards it. Um, I am not, I don't think I'm very intense. Yeah. Um, it used to be when I was working from home, yeah. I had a really hard time with work-life balance, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs do, um, especially some of the folks listening. If you're in the early stage of your business and you work from home or you work from a co-working space, my problem was I would you know, wake up, I would eat some breakfast, I'd sit at my computer, and then I'd just sit at my computer until 10 at night. And you know, I'd take breaks during the day, but then I'd be working from 8 to 10, and I had no separation. Uh, and it really started to wear on me. Uh, and that's why when I moved to Charlotte in 2015, I got the office and I said, we're going to try to do work at work and I'm going to try to do home at home. Um, and But I still had this this idea that I did a lot of work at home. So I built this big home office, right? Yeah. I had two dual monitors. I was like, all right, when I'm at home, I'm going to be productive. Uh, and I actually now, I just gave those two monitors away. Oh, did you? Um, and so I just have a laptop and I don't do a ton of work at home. I mean, I definitely do. Yeah, yeah. My team is probably all laughing if you hear me write this, <laughs> say this, but you know, cause I do send them messages, you know, at night and I always tell them, you know, I own the company. You can always call me. Yeah. But for the most part, you know, I do work at work. I get here at nine o'clock and I leave at six o'clock and that's pretty much it. So, so. No, that's cool. Um, what do you think of the Charlotte startup scene? Um, somebody that kind of has been, been outside of it for a little bit. You're mm-hmm. very much in it. Um, you are a startup. There's no question about that, yeah. right? Um, but um, it doesn't feel like you've been incorporated into it as much, right? And you're getting in that direction, I think. Um, you've gotten some good publicity and stuff like that here as of late. Um, but what do you think of that uptown scene? Um, how's, how's it going from Bill's eyes? Well, I, I think it's not fair to compartmentalize the Charlotte startup scene to the uptown scene. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of it that happens in South End and, yeah. uh, and, uh, and Plaza Midwood and everywhere else. Um, the Charlotte startup scene, it, I feel like it's this, like in this chicken and egg state. I met a really, a lot of really awesome entrepreneurs, some of whom have been on your podcast. Yeah. Um, and you know, we meet up, we have, I go, attend several Charlotte startup CEOs, meetups where you know we meet once a month we have lunch we talk shop uh, and the entrepreneur scene in charlotte is very tight-knit you yep. know, everybody knows everybody else which you know means that if an investor does something it gets around yeah you know as i'm sure the investor scene is very tight-knit as well so yep. if a startup pulls something it gets around when you only have two investors in charlotte it's good to have yeah. a, it's, it's easy to have a tight-knit scene right yeah yeah yep. um but i feel like it's the the entrepreneurs are trying to accelerate this thing and i feel like the one thing that is lacking in charlotte is a centralized pool of capital um you know coming from boulder we were talking about before we started recording you know bradfeld and founder group have provided this just anchor and nucleus for everything else to orbit around and now boulder has kind of reached escape velocity to some degree from founder group that it's not all just orbiting around them but it was instrumental in the early days that there was an anchor where entrepreneurs could go to and pitch. And we do have Charlotte Angel Fund here, but that's a very different beast. That's not a committed pool of capital where one guy can pull the trigger. Uh, And I think that is what Charlotte is really lacking to kickstart this thing. And it's not necessarily that this pool of capital has to invest only in Charlotte startups. And this is the thing that kills me. I know the Angel Fund gets a ton of heat for not investing in Charlotte startups, but you can't ask them to 
you know, compromise on what startups they might invest in just to be hometowners. Yeah. Right? That's not how they make money and that's not how they get bigger and invest in more startups, et cetera. Um, so I think it would go a long way to have a dedicated pool of capital, even in Charlotte, even if they didn't solely invest in Charlotte, they could be a nucleus for the ecosystem and entrepreneurs could at least pitch them and get advice. Uh, and I, we don't really have that. What does it take, right? I and mean, this is, um, and I pontificate about this all the time, um, but from your view, I'm, uh, we've had Red Ventures, we had Lending Tree back in the 90s, um, right? Still do. Um, we still have Lending Tree, good point. Um, so Lending Tree and Red Ventures and Avid Exchange, and more recently, um, you know, you had a deal cloud, you know, a legitimate deal cloud exit. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got Passport that will likely become a unicorn. Um, uh, you've got um, Map Anything and all of these, um, Traceda and all these other things. What does it take for somebody to say, you know what, Star- Charlotte's a decent place for me to put a capital pool. Uh, why aren't we there yet? Well, I think it takes someone to some degree from Charlotte. Yeah. You know, like I don't think someone's going to move from New York to Charlotte and say I'm setting up my fund in Charlotte. But we don't get snow and cold weather, right? It's right. easy around right. here. Yeah. But I think, uh, you know, the, some of the companies you just mentioned are going to have exits and more exits. And yeah. that's going to, there's going to be more capital in Charlotte. But that's what mints angel investors to some degree. Uh, unless the CEO, the former CEO, after he exits, decides that he wants to really plant a flag as a VC. Yeah. Which might happen. Um, but I, th- I think it could take just someone from the finance community who has some chops, who's been a successful investor, saying, I'm interested in this asset class and I want to live in Charlotte. Let's raise a fund. I mean, Charlotte has private equity funds, yeah. and those funds are run by guys who want to live in Charlotte. Yeah. You know, for the, And they said, I'm a fantastic investor, and I can attract capital, and I want to live in Charlotte, and I don't mind getting on an airplane to invest nationally, but it's got to be in Charlotte. Um. I think it, um, I don't know, I mentioned this before on the podcast, I think it's post-next recession it'll happen. Um, We'll have enough people that leave the Ivory Towers to start businesses that don't leave voluntarily. They're pushed out of the Ivory Towers. Mm -hmm. They'll start technology companies, and then all of a sudden we'll have committed capital here. I'm hopeful. Um, Well, I think it's it's important to note, you said, and they'll start technology companies. I think it's important to understand that startups are not technology companies. Yeah, that's true. Uh, There's so much more. I mean... Elements Brands is technology enabled, but we're a consumer products company. We sell widgets. Um, you know, Trisada is a some degree consulting company. Yeah, right. Sure. You know, there's a lot of businesses that are not tech, and I think Charlotte is a little bit myopic in that startups are tech, and people investors are not looking outside of tech. There's a lot of really cool businesses that you can start that are not tech. Like my friend Will Brew is starting this company called Rent Ready. Yep. And they turn over apartment units for apartment complexes when the tenants check out. And they're building a great business, and they were able to raise some funding. Yep. And that's it's tech-enabled, and that there's a database behind it, but it's not rocket science. They're repainting and cleaning apartments, right? It's a great business. Yeah. Uh, so I think Charlotte investors need to wrap their heads around a little bit that startups does not mean technology, and there's a lot of cool startups that are a little bit more approachable, right? Because if you work at the bank, Oh, I don't get all this tech stuff, right? Yep. There's there's different unit economics here. I don't necessarily buy into the let's light a, light a bunch of my money on fire in hopes that we can raise money from a greater fool later. Like that's a very uncomfortable investing place to be yep. for guys coming from a more private equity oriented uh, investing background. And I think people should realize that in Charlotte there are businesses that are not dependent on lighting early capital on fire. And that they are not tech enabled. They're tech enabled, but not tech forward. And they're not 
complicated or scary. They're businesses you can wrap your head around and that have unit economics and that need capital. They're out there. Um, no, I mean, it's an excellent point. Um, and you're right that there's a, um, there's a fair number of them. I don't know if those folks always recognize the fact that they want or need capital either, though. You're right. Yeah. Um, so there's that crossroads that we're at with Charlotte where entrepreneurs are trying to grow up. Um, and some entrepreneurs think they need capital and they don't, right? I mean, you didn't mm-hmm. take capital early on. Sometimes it's not about capital. Um, and at the same time, investors are trying to figure out what the heck they're doing because as we were talking about before, most of them have never done this before. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of swimming in this fish tank together and they haven't found out that they're necessarily in the same room mm-hmm. um, or the same fish tank, I guess, to, yeah. to keep the analogy correctly. So um, it will be, and you said it way back in the early part of our conversation, we're on that precipice, we think, of um, really come a long ways. Um, and I, you know, for one thing, Charlotte's future from a startup, not necessarily tech, but just startup world, um, is so far, you know, there's so right in front of us. Mm-hmm. I think so. I mean, it, we have all of the raw materials yeah. here. They just got to coalesce in the primordial, primordial ooze and turn into a startup scene. Yeah. Um, we'll, um, tough question. Will you go public? I hope never to go public. It sounds like a nightmare. (laughs) And another thing, like people think going public is like this bar you got to clear and that's what success is. Uh, There are plenty of great, very large, very cash flow positive private companies that return oodles of capital to their investors. Yeah. Fidelity happens to be one of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. So great, great family owned, family owned business. I mean, in our, in our business, SC Johnson, a great example, you know, they're huge and very private. I don't even know. I know they're north of N billion. Just in 2013, they were 13 billion, I think. So who knows how big they are now? Good point. So let's wrap up. Um, we got a couple minutes left. Let's wrap up back on what we started talking about, which is just Element Brands. Um, can you go international? Uh, yeah, we do already. Um, so we do, and actually mention Amazon. Amazon is an awesome tool for that. Yeah. Because they have the FBA network fulfillment by Amazon built out in Europe. So you can go to almost the entire EU very easily. Um, and they're opening, they're opening Australia, they're opening a lot of different countries where you don't need to build that infrastructure and you can use Amazon to penetrate that country. But we also work with, you know, we have a distributor uh, in Thailand, a distributor in Portugal, a distributor in the UK, a distributor in Canada. Um, so we've built out, you know, a lot of these markets are so different. Mm-hmm. You know, we also have still so much runway here in the United States. A lot of times we've, these distributors have come to us and we say, we'll sell you the product at a good price. You know, stay here are our brand guidelines. Go for it. Um, so it's not a huge part of our business, but we're trying. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, how's it dealing with the? So you sell through um, thousands of mom and pop shops, right? Yeah. How's that process? Is it um, is it rewarding? Is it difficult? Um, what's it like to work with that many you know mom and pop shops across the U.S.? So I think it's really cool. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, people are have historically been afraid, and they go, "Oh, that's so much work," yeah. right? But you got to understand the DNA of Elements Brands comes from a place where we deal with thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of individual consumers all day, every day, right? We know how to market to those people. We know how to email them, to manage a message to them, to get them to repurchase. And when you think about these folks, these mom and pop store owners, they have Amazon accounts. They're, they're consumers in their individual lives, right? They're comfortable buying things online. And they're comfortable buying things in a technology-enabled way. They're comfortable being emailed right, by brands that they buy stuff from, that's seeing ads. So what we've done is 
we've taken a lot of the marketing things that you do, we do at scale to consumers and do some of those same things and tweaked and customized, of course, for the retailers. And we've built some custom software in-house where the retailers can log in, see all their customized pricing, see all their past orders, pay with a credit card, and it drops it right into our order system. And then we see that, you know, typically they buy, let's say they buy three cases and they buy every three months. If it goes four months since their last order, they're going to get an automated email that says, hey, why haven't you ordered? And it'll raise a flag to one of our sales reps. So that's why I talk about like a tech-enabled sales team. Yeah. You can't deal with these people, this many people, you know, one-to-one at scale. You've got to find a way to manage them more like B2C folks. And we've been pretty successful with that. And the director of sales that we're trying to hire, uh, we're looking for someone that sees that vision and can build out. You know, it's, it's like a direct-to-store uh, sales and marketing organization. Yeah. Um, great vision, great team. Um, kind of wrap up on one last question. What does success mean to you? Uh, success to me means that I wake up every day, come to an office that I want to work at and work with people who I enjoy working with. Um, and obviously that the business is financially successful to a place that it rewards me and our investors uh, in a way that we can keep going. Yeah. Um, that that's the ultimate vision, right? And there's obviously a ton wrapped up in that, um, and there's a ton that you have to do before you can, you know, lower order things before you can even start thinking about higher order things like that. Um, but ultimately, you know, kind of my test is, you know, do I I want to build a company that I want to work at in ten years? Uh, I want to do this forever, yeah. this Elements Brands thing, um, and so I'm trying to build it to be the type of thing that I want to do forever, and then hopefully that everybody you know, out there wants to do forever. Yeah. Uh, well, from every degree or from every outside perspective, if that's your measure of success, it looks like you've created it. Um, and certainly wish you continued luck in continuing to create that. And um, again, thanks for carving out an hour to sit down and be on the podcast. Of so, course. So really enjoyed it. Yeah, this was really fun. Thanks so, for having me. Yeah, thank you. William Bissett is an investment advisor representative with Seacrest Blakey and Associates, a registered investment advisor. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Seacrest Blakey and Associates. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Seacrest Blakey and Associates does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under the Securities Act and a qualified purchaser as defined in Section 2A, Paragraph 51, Line A, under the Company Act or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.